Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. So, Manya, who did you speak with this week? Sefi, I talked to Deborah Lipstad, a Jewish historian at Emory University who long before the massacre at a Pittsburgh synagogue or the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, was writing her latest and prescient book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, and she tells us why. Sefi, how about you? I spoke with our old friend Raoul Woodliff, the uh, chief political correspondent at the Times of Israel, to get an update from him. We haven't checked in on the Israeli political system in about a month or so, and there is quite a bit of news. Yes, there is. I also spoke with Dr. Matthew Levitt, an expert in Hezbollah and terrorist organizations across the Middle East, about the political upheaval going on in Lebanon, where the prime minister has just resigned this week. Now, let's hit the show. When Deborah Lipstad began working on her latest book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, she says people asked her if it was really necessary to write it. That was before the massacre of 11 worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the murder of another in Poway, California, and the countless anti-Semitic attacks around the world that have unfolded in the past year. Where is all this hatred coming from? What can we do to stop it? In a series of letters to an imaginary Jewish college student and Gentile legal scholar taken aback by the resurgence of this ancient hatred, historian and professor Lipstad shares her answers to those questions and addresses why we shouldn't be shocked at all. Professor Lipstadt, a Jewish history professor at Emory University, joins us now to talk about some of those answers and whether the world is sufficiently aware of this ever-present danger. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So tell me what did inspire you to write this book. When did you start writing it? Was there a catalyst? Yeah, the catalyst was a lot of things that happened, amazingly enough, now it sounds like ancient history, uh, in 2014. The shooting in Brussels, the, the murder in Brussels of visitors to the uh, Jewish Museum there, and a lot of the anti-Semitism that emerged around the war in Gaza. But it was clear to me that it wasn't just related to the war in Gaza, that there had been enough other things happening that to just say, oh, this is all about Gaza was a simplistic view. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that got a tremendous amount of attention and discussion. And uh, funnily, I didn't. I thought that would be the end of it. My agent said to me, Deborah, there's a book here. Where's the book proposal? I said, I have wallowed in the sewers of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial for so much of my life. I really don't want to write about this. But he wouldn't give up. So I wrote the proposal. He presented to a publisher. They were interested and I had to write the book. But I mean, a little flip about that, really. But as the time, I really started writing the book, I would say 2015, mid to end 2015. And by that point, it was clear that the book was, to me, it was clear that the book was necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, was the resurgence of anti-Semitism all that clear? Or were you, did you detect in the research of this book some new disguises? I saw new disguises. You know, remember, I've been dealing in this field for so long that my antennae are so sharply honed. And as many people, as would be the case, I think, for many people at the American Jewish Committee, when you deal with this, you sort of, 
you know it when you hear it, you know it when you see it, you have, you know, what we call it, uh, anti-Semitism dar, you know, (laughs) hate dar. Sadly. Uh, Yes. So um, I began to see things Mm -hmm. and I began to see trends and I began to see an emergence of anti-Semitism on the right in a way that we hadn't seen it in recent decades. And I began to see an institutionalization of anti-Semitism on the left. It had been on the left for quite a while, you know, way back to the old folks listening will remember the new left. And in years since then, uh, it's been adopted by the left. Uh, or not everyone on the left, but certain, uh, clearly not everyone. Um, but I began to see the institutionalization, the Labor Party in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, BDS on campus, many of its aspects are clearly Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic, and many other things. So I saw this convergence from both sides, which which called to my mind for analysis. Were you seeing BDS on Emory's campus? Emory has been a fairly quiet campus. We had an incident at the end of the academic year of 2019, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's a fairly quiet campus. You're more likely to see these events... Um, on large campuses with large graduate school populations, graduate students. Why graduate school? Because graduate students are more attuned politically, though that's not always the case. You see it in other Vassar, Wesleyan, you see it in other places as well. Um, Though I do think that in coming months we'll see it on campuses like Emory because I think they've targeted those generally quiet campuses Mm -hmm. for for action, so Mm -hmm. to speak. So how are the right, how are the left, how are they disguising their anti-Semitism? I mean, they're they're not out there shouting tropes. On the right, it's what we call white replacement theory or white genocide theory. And it's exactly what you saw in Charlottesville. You know, the Jews will not replace us. Mm -hmm. What did they mean by that? This is a theory widely accepted on the far right. And as you move away from the extremist fringes of the far right, as you get more towards the center, it's accepted in a little less of a sinister way, but it's a, it's a conviction that I think this is it's correct. And the theory goes, or the claim goes, uh, that there is a plan afoot to attack white Christian culture, to replace white Christian culture with black people, with brown people, with Muslim people. Um, and this is happening all across Europe uh, as as refugees and newcomers arrive. And it's happening in America with the stream or hordes or whatever infestational words that they use uh, from the South. But the white Christian replacement theorist goes on to say, these people certainly lesser than us white Christians, uh, not as talented, not as smart. They're not capable of engineering this replacement. Mm-hmm. This is being engineered by the Jews, by mm-hmm. a Sor- whether it's a Soros, Soros, whether it's uh, Rothschild, whether it's the American Jewish Committee, whether it's uh, you know Zionist organizations, whatever, whatever stand-in they put in there, and that it's... Um, it's it's something very insidious and something very devious, and it's 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 being run by Jews. Hmm. So that's what we see on the on the right. On the left, it tends to converge not only but primarily around um, Israel-related things. Not that they're always related to Israel, but Israel becomes the stand-in. Mm-hmm. You know, 
we don't like Zionists, people will say, even though they don't even know what a Zionist is. Um, but they know, you know, it's not quite cool to be overtly anti-Semitic, but it's okay to attack Israel because you say, oh, this is politics. Uh, Jews, I care about Jews. After Pittsburgh, I was at the memorial service because they love dead Jews. I mean, dead Jews are okay. Um <laughs> But yeah, I'm being facetious, obviously. <laughs> of course. Um, but uh, so there, you see it more in that side. Right. But all you have to do is follow the comments of made by Jeremy Corbyn, you know, leader of the Labour Party, British Labour Party, and those around him, or Ken Livingstone, the former mayor of London, who is is very much a man of the left, or some people in this country, and you know, our representatives and leaders in this country as well. Mm-hmm. So tell me, the United Nations has just released its first human rights report that focuses exclusively on anti-Semitism. Now, this is after a number of UN Secretary Generals have called for efforts to combat anti-Semitism. Finally, the first report is being released. It seems like every report up until this point has kind of lumped in anti-Semitism with other hates, uh, anti-Muslim hatred, uh, hatred against the LGBTQ population. But this one is exclusively focused on anti-Semitism. And I'm just curious what you make of the report's conclusions. I think, first of all, the very existence, the most important thing about the report may be its very existence. Okay. And since this is a American Jewish Committee podcast, I want to give a shout out, a well-deserved shout out to Felice Gare, who's been with the committee for decades, um, who has been a human rights activist, even when it wasn't very popular to be a human rights activist. And she is in great measure, you know, her thumbprints are are all over behind the effort to make this happen. Of course, she's been working on this for years, and it took a a secretary (laughs) general who was willing to address it. It took a worsening situation. Sadly, the worsening situation made people realize that this was important. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think, and I think it's very important in that regard. It's important in that regard also because it's coming out as part of a human rights effort. Mm -hmm. And I think it is crucial, and this is a two-way street, it's crucial that the human rights community recognize that anti-Semitism is part of their agenda, just like uh, fear of Muslims, just like homophobia, just like uh, racism, et cetera, et cetera. It also is important, and that's why what's happened here in, in at the committee in the, the Jacob Blaustein Institute is that we have to recognize that if we're going to ask groups, uh, you know, groups that are concerned and individuals that are concerned about anti-Semitism, they also have to be concerned about human rights. Mm-hmm. You can't fight one ism to the exclusive nature of otherisms. But many people in the, who care about anti-Semitism have been burnt in the past. They say they talk about everything, but not about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Well, here's here's a, maybe a momentary thing. It may be a small thing compared to the sea of what came before it, but it's a serious effort and it's important effort. Um, I was very pleased to have worked a little bit with uh, Dr. Shahid in, in the framing of this, more so uh, my book and my writings he, he has acknowledged uh, were helpful to him. And I think it's it's a great move in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also very impressed by the fact that it recognizes that efforts such as BDS can 
be um, anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that every student who becomes part of BDS is is necessarily an anti-Semite. But the founders of the BDS movement, the creators of the BDS movement, clearly call for the destruction of the state of Israel. They want the end of the state of Israel. And to me, that's anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I should also add that Dr. Shahid, you, you referred to, is the UN rapporteur who came up with this who And who authored report the report. Authored I mean, obviously, it went through many hoops Nothing comes out of the U.N. without going through many, many vetting processes. But he was really the driving force. He was the creator. He was given the task. He took it on very, very seriously. He educated himself, and he deserves great credit for it. What do you make of the recommendations of the report? It recommends creating a senior-level person to address anti-Semitism. It recommends the adoption of the uh, definition of anti-Semitism that uh, comes from the a Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. I, by and large, you know, I, without getting nitpicky and into the weeds, by and large, I think they're all great efforts and important efforts. Uh, we don't have to recreate the wheel. Mm-hmm. But what the report is saying, both the existence of the report and the contents of the report, is that it's time to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. You see, for many people, uh, particularly but not only on the progressive left. But for many people, you, they look at Jews and they say, what are they complaining about? <laughs> you know, they're white, even though the, for those on the far right, the guy in Pittsburgh, the murderer in Pittsburgh was yelling, you won't destroy the white race. The guy in Poway was the same kind of thing. You know, Jews will not replace us was, right. was you know, because they don't see Jews as white. But on the left um, and the progressive left, they see Jews as white. Mm-hmm. They can pass. They see Jews as privileged, though we know many Jews are not privileged. And if you control for education, you know, Jews are a highly educated group. They're exactly where they should be, but that doesn't matter. They see Jews, money, Jews, which is, you know, Mm anti-Semitism, one of the elements of anti-Semitism. And they say, well, how could Jews be victims? I mean, this is one of the problems we see on campus. We see the difficulty of many campus administrators, not out of evil and not out of latent anti-Semitism, but they just don't get it. Mm -hmm. They can't grasp that this group that's coming in, the student coming in, from who lives in, I don't know, Westchester, Beverly Hills, uh, whatever it might be. And he's saying, look, you know, I, I had things yelled at me because I was one, walking across the campus in a yarmulke or I had things thrown at me or, uh, you know, people taunted me. And they're thinking, what is he complaining about? I want a real problem. And I think this report is an effort to say this is something that needs to be taken seriously. We need to take the issue seriously, not just when there are dead bodies lying mm. on the ground. And, yes. and I, I hate to speak so graphically, but there are even people now, we're, we're speaking in the wake of the attack in Holland on Yom Kippur. And there are people in Germany saying, well, it just destroyed property. Nobody got killed except for the two people outside who weren't even part of the Jewish community. So, um, but for a bolt on the door, <laughs> right. it would have been a massacre of immense proportions because these people were in one building inside the building with very little egress and place to go, then then people say, oh, well, this is to take seriously. This is hate on the right, and it must be taken seriously. And the other thing I want to say that's very important, some people have already done this. They say, oh, you see, it's more dangerous on the right. We don't have to worry about the left. We don't have to worry about Muslim hatred or Muslim terrorist, Islamist terrorists. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's coming from both sides. 
Right. And I think this, you know, this dance of which is worse, you know, it becomes like a food fight. And I, and I, I don't mean to be uh, jocular in any way, but it's the weaponization. It becomes a political weapon so that I have friends who are very committed on the right and they say it's all about the left. And friends on the left who say, you see what's happening? Poway, San Diego, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Halle. Um, look next to you. Mm-hmm. That's where you have your most credibility. Right. Look to the person next to you. What are they saying right next to you? Don't just look across the political transom. Someone you have a relationship someone with. Someone you have a relationship with, with whom you share, share other political grounds. Right, right, exactly. Right. Um, my last question to you, Professor, is how does one school themselves in anti-Semitism um, to avoid making anti-Semitic mistakes that they have heard just in the vernacular over time and never realized. In the, in the ether realized. sphere or whatever, right. right. Uh, the assumption all Jews are rich, the <laughs> right. assumption all Jews are powerful, the assumption mm-hmm. Jews get what they want, et cetera. Um, you know, by the way, this is not just a problem in relation to anti-Semitism. It's also a problem in relation to racism. It's a problem. I have a, a I was at a research institute at Emory a few years ago, and I had a colleague from Virginia, born and raised, taught in Virginia, born and raised someplace else in in North Carolina, I think. And she was of Asian origin, and she said, "Always people say to me, where are you from?'" And I say, "Virginia." They know, where are you really from? Well, I was raised in North Carolina. Where are you really from? Which they would never say to someone who was white and Caucasian. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. How do you recognize it? We all recognize it in Pittsburgh. We all recognize it in Poway. We all recognize it in Halle. We all recognize it in Hypercacher in, in the supermarket in France. But recognize it in the small statements. Mm. Recognize it in, I hate this term, but I'll use it, the microaggressions, you yes. know. <laughs> recognize it that when a newspaper says, well, you know, Jews control the foreign policy. Or recognize it when um, someone makes an anti-Semitic crack. Mm-hmm. Call them out. Mm-hmm. There are many things that can only be done on the UN level, the committee level, the organizational level, like an organization such as this one. But there are things we can do on the individual level. We have to become the unwelcome guests at the dinner party. Mm -hmm. And we have to call people out. And we can't just call them out about racism and accept their anti-Semitism. We can't just call them out on anti-Semitism and accept their racism. Mm -hmm. And also, would you say, be willing to be called out um, when you accidentally repeat something that you've heard? Yes, exactly. Be willing, right. Just, you know, with with racism or sexism, don't get defensive, you know. And, and, uh, of course, but hopefully people do that. But I think the part of the uh, challenge is for the person doing the calling out to find a way, and this is hard, and I can't give you a simple boilerplate template way to do it, but to find a way of saying it so that the person who said it will hear them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same way when you give criticism in any way. So what do the social worker and psychologist say when you want to criticize? Instead of saying your remark was awful or I felt bad or your remark made me f- – and then the per- – oh, I didn't mean to make you feel bad and then the person will hear it. Um, it's not a battle for scoring points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a war, a war against hatred, a war against prejudice, the oldest prejudice in the world. 
it's got to be an educational uh, effort, educational, and I don't mean just in the classroom or books, but but individual efforts. And and that was one of the reasons, again, that I wrote the book. And I wrote the book, as you mentioned in your introduction, in a way of letters mm-hmm. because I wanted it to be accessible. And I've been deeply, deeply gratified. Um, I would have liked to be a little less relevant. You know, <laughs> everybody writes a book; they want their book to come out just at the right time. I would have been happy if the situation had been a little less extreme. Yeah. But I've been very touched by uh, the number of rabbis who used it in their sermons, classroom teachers, parents giving it to kids, families reading it together. Um, I feel truly humbled by that. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you for helping us fight this battle. Her book is called Anti-Semitism Here and Now, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. This week, after sustained protests across Lebanon, Prime Minister Saad Hariri resigned. But protests have not abated, and the crowds have taken up the chant of all of them means all of them calling for the end not only to Hariri's government, but to the corrupt leaders and terrorists who have held on to power in Lebanon for many years. Joining us now to help us understand these developments is Dr. Matthew Levitt, the Fromer Wexler Fellow at the Washington Institute and the author of Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure being here. Thanks for having me. Now, how did these protests in Lebanon start and for how long have they been going on? They've been going on for about 10 days now, 10, 12 days. The precipitant event was the government's decision to start taxing calls made through the otherwise free uh, app, uh, WhatsApp, which is used very, very commonly in Lebanon, indeed throughout uh, the Middle East. And people just got fed up with the idea that the government was going to try and tax the people yet again on an issue that people kind of expect to be free when there's so much corruption, um, there's so many people in government who are so fabulously wealthy, and there's a real economic crisis in the country. Right. And can you say a little bit more about those systemic issues that underpin something like this? Like, it sounds pretty crazy to topple a a prime minister over, you know, a a few cents for WhatsApp calls. But people, I guess this is really more of an expression of frustration, of anger against the pretty crazy political system that Lebanon has long had, right? So the WhatsApp tax was just a precipitant event. The underlying issue was a larger currency crisis, which has translated into a concern that uh, there might be uh, a run in gasoline and line pump, a concern about the ability to uh, import wheat, concern about the uh, place that the lira is trading to the dollar. And because of that, the uh, impact that has on critical imports, again, like things like wheat. And then there have been other issues that are at the sectarian nature of this government, divided between Sunni, Christian, and Shia sectarian communities. And you've had, in particular, Lebanese Hezbollah being called out on a series of actions by the U.S. government for a long list of different types of illicit financial conduct, including, you know, strong-arm, mafia-style extortion tactics to try and prevent banks from putting in place or enforcing sanctions against Hezbollah. There are uh, reports that uh, senior officials within Hezbollah and elsewhere within the government have been able to secure very large unsecured loans that are just not being repaid and that these are just not being reported. 
And so you have a kind of combination of a political, economic, and political crisis. The government led by Saad Hariri is not in a position to be able to make any changes because Hezbollah has a blocking third, even though Hezbollah itself doesn't have enough seats on its own, together with some Christian parties in particular, has enough votes to be able to block any policy in the government. And so what these protests now led to today was the resignation of the prime minister. They're not big fans of the prime minister. They did not want the government, of which they are the loudest and most powerful voice, to fall. So let me just run through some of that and see if I have it, because it can be really hard to understand Lebanon as an outsider. I mean, you have post-secondary, you know, graduate level degrees in this kind of thing. So the president of Lebanon, the prime minister of Lebanon, and the speaker of the Lebanese parliament are kind of, you know, the president, I think, is always a Christian, right? Today, that's Michel Aoun. The prime minister is always a Sunni Arab, Correct. And the Speaker of the Parliament is always a Shia, uh, Shia Muslim, a Sunni Muslim and Shia Muslim. Um, they're all Arab. Correct. So that means that Saad Hariri is going to be replaced. I'm sure there is lots of you know wondering who will it be, who will it be? But we know that his replacement is going to come from someone within the Sunni Muslim political camp. Is that correct? Not only is that correct, it's not at all impossible that the person that's going to replace Hariri is going to be Hariri. He'll be (laughs) the person asked to come back, and he'll have, I think maybe from his perspective, if he decides to do that, he'll have leverage now to demand some of the changes that he was not able to make beforehand. I read this morning in the New York Times, uh, there was an article with the headline, The Arab Spring Rekindled in Beirut. I think a lot of observers of the Middle East are kind of skeptical that the Arab Spring really took place in any serious way the first time around. What do you think about a take like that? Is this, you know, the new blossoming of an Arab Spring? Look, there's no question something did happen in that original Arab Spring. It didn't yield the results that many had hoped it would. It did not lead to the flourishing of democracy around the region. The only country that maybe is a potential for success that came out of that was the country where it started, in Tunisia. Uh, Most cases, the parties, the people who were best positioned to take advantage of the change, kicking out longtime despotic rulers, were uh, strong-arm parties, were extremists themselves, or other dictators. In Lebanon and in Iraq today, you have something similar in the sense that there is a bottom-up, spontaneous set of protests in both countries. And these are both countries that have deep sectarian divisions. In both countries, there is a cross-sectarian protest. It's not Sunnis against Shia or someone else against the Christians. All parties are protesting the current government, both in Iraq and in Lebanon. In Lebanon, they're chanting, everyone must go. That means everyone. The party that is most shocked by this is Hezbollah, because you even have Hezbollah supporters in Hezbollah strongholds protesting against the government, even though Hezbollah didn't want it. So yesterday, Hezbollah sent its thugs into Martyrs Square in downtown Beirut to um, rip down tents and the peaceful protests that were going on there. Those tents have since been rebuilt. I don't think that necessarily what's going to come out of this is a Jeffersonian democracy in either Iraq or Lebanon. These are both deeply divided countries in which Iran has very close ties 
to not just political, but inherently militant parties within the countries. But I do think that this is going to have to lead to some type of change. It is going to empower those who want to put in place some types of change that will make a difference, but not so much that they will pose a serious threat to those militant parties, in particular those beholden to Iran, either in Lebanon or in Iraq. So let's just close with diving into that question just a little bit more. Israel is concerned about Hezbollah in Lebanon. Hezbollah has somewhere north of 100,000 missiles, well north of 100,000 missiles and rockets stockpiled on Israel's northern border, uh, kind of embedded in the villages in South Lebanon. Um, Hezbollah is seen in many regards as perhaps the most clear and present danger stemming from Iran in Israel. So you said the change that may come in Lebanon is unlikely to shake Hezbollah. But what do these protests, what does this resignation mean for the future of Hezbollah and how will that impact Israel? These are great questions. There is an opportunity here, an undeniable opportunity to try and help um, the people of Lebanon form a government that is representative of all of their needs, takes the interests of the people first before the parochial interests of any particular corrupt politician or party or militant organization, especially those beholden to foreign countries like Iran. But we have to be realistic in our expectations. I think that an expectation that uh, hopes that some of the changes that will be put in place here will involve maybe the Lebanese armed forces to be able to actually exert control along the border between Israel and Lebanon is something that we should consider. Right now, Hezbollah controls much of that territory. Some of it is a closed-off military zone, not a military zone for the sovereign army, the Lebanese armed forces, but for Hezbollah. I think something that uh, that, that enables the government to tell Hezbollah it's no longer acceptable for Hezbollah to maintain not only its own rocket arsenal, but from the Israeli perspective, even more disconcerting is what they call the precision guided missile program, where they're smuggling in these components to take missiles that can't be aimed at a particular uh, window or building, but only at, you know, at a neighborhood and make them smart missiles that can be aimed with the GPS system much more dangerously. The Israelis have declassified and made public where some of those locations are, some of the individuals involved in that program, including Lebanese Hezbollah and Iranian operatives on the ground in Lebanon. And I think that we certainly should expect that the government should be empowered to uh, have more ability to regulate the banking system and prevent groups like Hezbollah from being able to leverage the Lebanese financial system, which is the backbone of the Lebanese economy, for its own illicit purposes, thereby exposing the entire Lebanese financial system to a significant amount of risk. How much of that is going to be translatable into actual policy? We just don't know, because at the end of the day, the reality is that Hezbollah is the largest and most powerful militia in Lebanon. We've seen some pictures over the past few days, Lebanese armed forces pushing Hezbollah operatives back, something you haven't seen in a very long time. But it's not clear at all that the Lebanese armed forces would be willing to engage in any type of exchange of gunfire with Hezbollah. And if Hezbollah is pushed too far, they could, as they did in 2008 when they took over downtown Beirut. Last time there was a difference of opinion with the Lebanese government when the Lebanese government tried to put regulation in place that Hezbollah didn't like. 
Back in 2008, Hezbollah took over downtown Beirut by force of arms and turned their guns against fellow Lebanese. And I think people are very worried about that. So we're going to have to be realistic in our expectations. Well, Matt, this is fascinating stuff. It's important stuff, and it's really hard to understand. So thank you for being our guide and walking us through all of it. It's always a pleasure. Joining us from Jerusalem is Raoul Woodliff, Chief Political Correspondent at the Times of Israel. Raoul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Lloyd. Now, when we last spoke, we had you on just after the results of the elections were actually as the results of the elections were coming in in Israel. And you said then that blue and white was the biggest winner. That's Benny Gantz's party, the kind of center-left challenger to Prime Minister Netanyahu's party. You said that Blue and White was the biggest winner because they were now the largest party and because there was no obvious path for Prime Minister Netanyahu to form a government. So since then, President Rivlin asked Prime Minister Netanyahu to take the first stab at assembling a majority anyway. How did that go? Well, Sefi, we didn't really see the same effort that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has put into previous uh, coalition-building efforts um, that he's made. He tried. He didn't fill the full uh, 28 days. He returned the mandate a few days early um, and told President Rivlin that he wasn't able to form a government. He met with Benny Gantz once, and the Likud and Blue and White teams met a couple of times, but there was no progress um, and there was no significant breakthroughs between any of the parties. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu persisted on uh, representing not just his Likud party, but a block of 55 seats of the right wing and religious parties. And as such, the Blue and White said they were unwilling to begin negotiations with preconditions. And uh, one of the conditions of that group was that they would all enter the government together. So we didn't see any significant progress at all. And as I said, at the end, or even before the end of that period, uh, Netanyahu told Rivlin that he was unable to form a government. So just to very quickly remind our listeners, the Knesset has 120 seats, and it has always kind of been assumed that the way to become prime minister is after an election, you reach out to the other parties and you cobble together a majority of at least 61 members of Knesset, then they vote for you to become prime minister. And if you have 61 members supporting you becoming prime minister, your party becoming kind of the lead party, then that becomes the governing coalition. I say that it's always been assumed that that's how it works because there are other countries, countries other than Israel. Canada is one country that comes to mind. The UK is another where a parliamentary democracy can be run by a minority coalition. What does that mean? Well, in Israel, um, as you said, we normally, in fact, after every election, a majority coalition has been formed. A minority coalition would be where the largest party doesn't have the support of more than 61 for the government, but they have a majority within the Knesset, a simple majority. So all they need is more votes for the government than votes against the government. So in theory, if one person from Blue and White were to vote in favour of the government and no one else were to vote against, that would be a government that could, in theory, work. It would be very difficult to pass laws. For every specific law, they would have to get the support of different factions in the parliament that aren't necessarily part of the government. But it could be possible. And right now, there are really three options ahead of Benny Gantz. One of them is breaking away 
some of the factions from that block of 55 or even break or causing some of the Likud MKs to break away and give him a majority, forming a minority government, as we said, or admitting that he also can't form a government and passing the, the process on to the next stage. So, Raul, you just laid out for us the three kind of possibilities as to what might happen. What do you think will happen? Well, it's very difficult to say at this stage. It seems that all of the sides are remaining intransient. It seems that the Bloc of 55 are not going to negotiate with uh, Benny Gantz on their own. And it's unlikely at this stage that anyone from the Likud would break away, rebel, certainly not enough with not enough support to bring enough MKs over to support Blue and White. At this stage, it does seem like third elections within a year are on the cards. That's really remarkable to hear. We actually, you know, I think last time we spoke, we also had this uh, comparison kind of looming. But it seems like in the UK, they're also determined to just kind of keep voting until eventually something works itself out. It sounds like Israel may now be heading down that path as well. Is there any indication from polling that a third round of elections would lead to any more clarity? At this stage, the polling has showed that third elections could give very similar results, both to this election and the previous election, which would result in more gridlock. And who knows? I mean, Fourth elections, it's hard to imagine, but uh, it's possible. Mentioning the polling is very important because at this stage, the polling is effectively Benny Gantz's political capital. And the better he does in polls predicting third elections is the more likely other parties would see him as a real option for prime minister now rather than risk going into elections where the future would be much more uncertain. So, so far, we've seen Benny Gantz make a number of key prime ministerial style speeches he set this week to address the official memorial event of the Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And if we see him being perceived by the public as a prime minister and therefore his polling numbers going up, it's possible that we might see some of the parties potentially change their position. Now, Raul, the 20th Knesset officially voted to dissolve itself at the end of December 2018. Christmas, actually. The 21st Knesset was the one that resulted from the elections in April. It lasted, I think, not even three months uh, or almost exactly three months. Now we're into the 22nd Knesset. We're also approaching one year that Israel will have gone without a government. What does that look like? Does that impact Israelis' daily lives? Does that affect the security posture of the state of Israel? Are there real-world ramifications to not having a government for that long? Well, the most significant impact is the lack of a, a Knesset. Um, we don't have a working, a functioning Knesset. There's still a government. The government is a transitional government. It's still the government from the 20th Knesset. In fact, there's one minister who wasn't elected in the 21st Knesset, wasn't elected in the 22nd, but still a minister, um, <laughs> uh, MK Uri Ariel. Uh, so the government is still able to make decisions, but it is limited. And lots of the bureaucratic decisions in terms of transferring budgets from certain ministries to other ministries, those are government decisions that need the approval of the Knesset. And the Knesset committees, such as the Knesset Finance Committee or the Knesset Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee, are only working on a minimal format at the moment. There is a, a temporary committee in place, but they're not working as they were previously. And therefore, there are lots of budgets that are stuck. And there are ministries that are failing to meet goals because of 
uh, a lack of the ability to transfer budgets. Now, where it could become very significant is in March 2020, because that's when a new state budget needs to be passed. And if it is not passed, then every ministry will just work each month on a twelfth of the previous year's budget. It will be very difficult to implement any sort of long-term planning, um, any sort of projects that cross over a number of years, even a number of months, um, because the ministry's budgets will be divided per month. It would be like they'll be getting a paycheck each month, um, rather than a year or a two-year budget, as we've previously had in Israel. So the lack of governance that we've seen so far could become significant and potentially destabilizing if we go into a third or further election uh, cycle. Well, I I remember when the phrase fiscal cliff came into uh, the American political lexicon. I hope that you all don't have to uh, translate that into Hebrew. That sounds like an absolute uh, nightmare to figure out how the very important functions of the Israeli government would continue. Raul, thank you again for this impeccable update. And we look forward to checking in with you again when there's more political news out of Israel. My pleasure. Thanks. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. Manya, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what will you be talking about? Well, this Shabbat, Sefi, I will be dining with a friend who is actually Armenian. I will give her a hug and acknowledge that a sad and frustrating chapter of her family's life here in America is finally approaching a resolution. And what I'm talking about, Sefi, is the U.S. House's decision this week to finally call the Armenian genocide precisely what it was, a genocide. The systematic extermination of more than a million Armenians by the Ottoman Empire that ruled Turkey during World War I. From what was then Constantinople to Ankara, Armenian intellectuals and community leaders were rounded up and eventually murdered. And more than a million people were evacuated and pushed into Syria by military escorts that deprived them of food and water. A literal death march. Genocide scholars have recognized the Armenian genocide as such since the coining of the term. Turkey's vicious attacks on the Syrian Kurdish population as soon as the United States began to withdraw its troops serves as a serious wake-up call and a reminder that Turkish authorities will do and have done whatever it takes to gain power. Most countries do, of course, but with a certain moral compass. While the Armenian genocide was more than a century ago, Turkey's denials of this systematic extermination have only served to prolong the atrocities. Turkish schoolchildren are actually taught that the Armenian genocide is a myth— And any country that suggests it might tell the truth about it is threatened. For years, Turkey threatened to call out the United States for its extermination of Native Americans. And thankfully, we beat them to it and acknowledged it ourselves. Because here's the thing. Sefi, you and I didn't do that. Our forebears did. Not us. But as a nation, we still have to own it and make amends so that our fellow citizens can move on. And because we are a nation of immigrants, home to a number of diasporas, we have to acknowledge the crimes against non-Native Americans, too. Elie Wiesel called Turkey's denial a double killing because it attempts to erase the memory of an event, which is key to a victim's ability to heal and move on. And it's also worth noting that a country unable to come to terms with or own its history is at more risk of doing it again. Which brings us back to Syria and our longtime Kurdish allies. We cannot allow this to happen, never, ever again. And, Sefi, that's why Congress's decision to name a century-old genocide matters. Perhaps it undermined diplomacy with Turkey or other countries, but what matters more, diplomacy or the truth? And I think you know my preference. Regardless of it being way overdue, telling the truth was the right thing to do. 
and I hope for my friend's sake that the healing can now begin. You know, every time I think of the Armenian genocide, I think of that notorious quote from a speech that Hitler gave in 1939 as the kind of final solution was beginning to be put into place. And he said something to the effect of, you know, we can do this because, you know, who today ever speaks of the annihilation of the Armenians? And that's so powerful. And thank you for sharing that reflection, Manya. I'm also thinking about history this week because 75 years ago, this week, a group of Jews did something completely ordinary under extraordinary circumstances. They prayed. But they did so in Aachen, Germany, in the middle of World War II as the battle for the city raged nearby. Back then, AJC teamed up with NBC Radio to broadcast that service all across the U.S. that year in 1944. The synagogue in Aachen had been destroyed six years earlier on Kristallnacht, so the American infantrymen who made up the congregation stood in an open field, and cantor Max Fuchs, just 22 years old, led a short service overseen by Rabbi Sidney Lefkowitz. You can just imagine the three purposes that service served. First, it was a chance for these soldiers to fortify themselves, to restore themselves spiritually in the middle of hell. We all knew what was happening, even though none of us actually came across one of the camps, Cantor Fuchs said. But every one of us knew what was happening there. Next, it was a warning to the German people. Milton Krentz, who directed AJC's radio work at the time, said, quote, The Allied armies composed of every color, faith, and nationality will never halt until freedom takes the place of tyranny on every inch of Axis soil. And finally, it was a shot in the arm to the Jews back home who knew that something terrible was happening in Europe, even if they didn't yet appreciate the scale. It was a reminder, transmitted by radio, that even when things have looked unimaginably grim, the Jewish people have survived. And I'll be talking about that at my Shabbat table this week. Now we'll end our episode with a short clip of that service from three quarters of a century ago. Subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 